When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We're back. This is episode 106, Why Use a JavaScript Framework. I'm Matt. That's Mike. And this week, we'll be discussing why and when to use a JavaScript framework. Then, we'll be discussing the Samsung ecosystem in our web news. Now, if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon. Leave a review or rating on your podcast app. Join us in our Discord server or just straight up share this with your friends. And now it's time for our weekly pain points. So, Mike, please take it away. Yeah, just to add to what you were saying and tied to my weekly pain point is you can check us out on twitch.tv slash things as well. Because uh, yeah. Matt and I have a stream and that leads into my weekly pain point because I had a heck of a time troubleshooting on the stream. Um, had this one issue where I was doing some sort of like a sanity IO and a grid sum integration and uh, one of my databases wasn't updating essentially and it, w- it turned out to be that I had to relaunch it like completely relaunch that one database uh, the GraphQL portion of it and then everything worked but I couldn't figure it out on stream I think I spent a good 35 minutes on the stream just like kind of smashing my head against the table um, and then as soon as I turned off the stream I managed to solve it like in a matter of seconds so it was really frustrating frustrating stream but we had good you know good discussions in the chat it was still a fun time so I didn't regret it but uh hate for some reason like troubleshooting on stream for me is a little bit more stressful than non-stream so i have to get used to it i think like you and i have been discussing having you know shorter streams or longer form streams and right now they're shorter just be due to time but i feel like when you do a shorter stream or if you're just doing a quick evening stream you feel more like you have to put on a show of which you kind of do in general because you are on Twitch, of course, like you're, you are putting on a show, but if you were doing something like you had a free full day and you were streaming all day, you would be more or less just sort of streaming live or uh, like coding live. And so it would be less about putting on a show and more about people just ha- literally hanging out with you type of thing. So I think, I think maybe that plays into it because I think that the troubleshooting, my, my philosophy with streaming is the streaming is a more real look at what's going on. Like I've made stupid typos. I've messed up. Like I forgot a character in, in some like embedded thing and it's super simple, but it's just something as easy as that could happen in production. Effectively it did, you know, so stuff like that. Um, but my weekly pain point is also semi streaming related. Um, so we've actually been invited to the Twitch affiliate program, which is pretty exciting. Uh, we filled out most of the details, but I'm having some issues with the tax stuff issues as in, I don't know, or I thought I knew what I was doing, tried to go through it myself. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing apparently, uh, or I want to at least get it confirmed by a tax person now. Um, so yeah, we're going to be doing that. I filled out the forms to the absolute best of my ability, read it through like six times and did not get the result that I was expecting. So I'm just going to get a tax professional to just straight up do this. And uh, that's actually a teachable thing. I'm going to be doing that for everything going forward with taxes. It's something that I don't understand. stresses me out a lot. And uh, even though I've answered it to the absolute best of my ability, 
I am not an accountant, and there's no substitute for a proper accountant, and I'm now for sure going to be using those services even more. Even if it costs us money, it will lo- probably literally give me years back on my life because I get so stressed out about it. I, that's it. <laughs> that's my weekly pain point. But it's exciting. Uh, it's exciting news. It's a good problem to uh, to have. Uh, and I could have I could have filled it all out perfectly, which would be awesome. But I just want to get it confirmed. And then we'll be an affiliate on Twitch, which is pretty exciting. So hurry for us, I suppose. It almost feel like almost felt like we needed like a we need like a almost had a laugh track. But we don't need like an applause track. Like we're an affiliate on Twitch, yay! But <laughs> Uh, but this is a Mike heavy episode. Uh, I did the web news this week, so Mike, please take it away, sir. All right. So what we're going to start with is what is a JavaScript framework. So we have had episodes on this. We've talked about it before, but I just want to give a quick refresher for the new listeners out there. Um, and I, I kind of redefined my definition a little bit uh, to make it a little bit more clear. So. A JavaScript framework is a technology that is built on top of the programming language JavaScript that extends, simplifies, or expands functionality of JavaScript. So this usually refers to something that does more than one thing as compared to like a package or a library where they're more one function centric. Um, And a a framework typically overhauls a certain aspect of your workflow and structure. Uh, And I'll give examples of it when, when we're kind of going through why you do use one. Um, but for example, like how you display variables in HTML, how you create and update HTML uh, elements through JavaScript, or how you handle events like clicks on loads, created, like any any of the JavaScript lifecycle, uh, a lot of frameworks will take over that for you and give you an easy way to access it throughout your coding and throughout your throughout the framework. So they, it, it essentially simplifies some of the core functions of JavaScript functionality and allows you to access them in an easier and um, more structured way. So having said that, uh, let's move right on to segment number two, why use one? Like why why do you need to use a JavaScript framework? I've been asked this a ton of times. Why over-engineer or complicate your code by using frameworks when everything can be done with just plain JavaScript? And that's true. Everything that a JavaScript framework can do, you can 100% do in plain JavaScript. That's a fact uh, because a lot of it is just essentially essentially extrapolating or adding just you know using plain javascript to make stuff a little bit easier and a little bit in a different structure and stuff like that i I would actually say just just to jump in really Mm -hmm. quick the way i kind of when we were learning this years ago the way you kind of think of it is in javascript obviously there's functions so you might have a function that says like get volume level and you like you call it get volume level and it detects and pulls in whatever the volume level is of a media player on a page or something like that you aren't constantly writing the lines of code of like how to get it, like pulling in the volume level. You quite literally are just saying like running that function and getting getting the return value or something like that, right, for your thing. And so effectively, that's kind of what a framework is, is it's is it oftentimes is running its own functions or it if it, it or it's compiling down to just the straight up JavaScript. That's kind of the way it is like you're. You're not making your own framework when you do that, but I mean, you kind of are in a way, if you think of it, like that's, that's the way I always thought of it is, is like, instead of me constantly remembering how to pull in the volume level, I'm going to code it once, make a function, have that be the generic function I use. And then if I need the volume level, I'm just going to call that a framework is just a collection effectively of those functions, obviously at a very like rudimentary level, there's a lot more to it, but that's sort of how I understood it. 
Yeah, and that that that's sort of correct. Uh, in for the most part, there's there's other stuff to it, like there's a structure that frameworks give you, um, and stuff like that. So there is other benefits of frameworks, and that's what I want to really get into. Uh, so again, while it's true that everything can be done in JavaScript, a framework is sometimes a better solution. And it's key to say sometimes because in some situations, or in a lot of situations even, uh, it's it's gratuitous to use a framework unless you're kind of learning how to use it and stuff like that. Um, so just to jump right into it, if you're on a large, complex project, uh, that's when you want to start looking at frameworks. That's when you want to start thinking about, okay, I mean, I have so many moving pieces. There's like, you know, a uh, this project's going to be maintained for a lot of times. There's a CRUD, there's CRUD operations that need to be done. So we need to create users, edit users. We need to create tasks, edit tasks. We need to create events, stuff like that. There's a there's a calendar that needs to be maintained. Uh, there's you know people need to be able to log in and get their user accounts and stuff that happens on the back end needs to quickly change the front end. As soon as you start adding up all those things, you start to think about like okay, in regular JavaScript, I'm gonna have to write every single part of that to work uh, individually, right? So I need to figure out your own way. Sometimes you can get some structures like from Stack Overflow. Sometimes you can get some ideas. But mostly in your own way, you're going to have to figure out and solve all those problems. Whereas a JavaScript framework like Vue.js and a lot of the stuff that I'm going to be talking about is going to be related to Vue.js because that's the one I know best. But a, a lot of frameworks solve a lot of these problems for you. So for instance, stuff like dynamic list views. So if you're trying to display a bunch of elements uh a framework will give you a for loop right in the template. So like, for instance, a Vue.js has the V4 function in the template, in the HTML that allows you to list over any of the variables that you, you can access inside of your JavaScript lifecycle, inside of your view lifecycle. So any of the variables that you've pulled in from your API, if that's a, if that variable is an array, or if that vari- variable is just a, you know, a, a massive object with a lot of different elements, you can loop through that in the HTML right away built in and you can create those different components and stuff like that so with with that like it just gives you a lot of functionality right out of the box and uh when you're trying to maintain architecture in a large code base it's a lot easier to do that when you have a template for that architecture so yes if you're alone coding on a large code base you can and you're really you know um you're really good. Like you really know, you really know how to maintain architecture. You're really good at, you know, uh, documenting or like having self-documenting code and stuff like that. You're really good. Then yes, you can get away with doing very complex functionality without a framework, no problem. Or if you have a team of like-minded people that are all extremely talented, regular JavaScript programmers and all like-minded in the sense that they all want to kind of, you know, create their own functionality on top of JavaScript to do these complex tasks. You can, and there's some examples of it, uh, do all these tasks in regular JavaScript. And it sometimes is a lot more efficient, like because you don't have any of that overhead of a framework compiling. You don't have any of the overhead of a bunch of extra lines of code that are running for no reason just because it has to accommodate so many different uh, use cases. You don't have that. So you're building your components and your structures for your own use cases when you're doing it just regular JavaScript. But if you don't have that coercion in your team or if you're not that organized or if you just need to build something quickly, that's it's not conducive. Like the a regular JavaScript, like regular JavaScript can you, you can, but it's really difficult to have that co- cohesion in a larger team or in a larger complex project. So 
again, that's a big part. That's a big part of when to use and why to use a JavaScript framework. So to to move on, uh, maintainable code bases. So again, like I mentioned, uh, what JavaScript frameworks allow you to do is have structure. They have predefined structure in their documentation. Like this is how your component looks. It has a template section. It has a script section with like how you export variables, how you define variables. It tells you how to do that. It tells you where your lifecycle events go, like where your uh, created event goes. So like your on DOM content loaded, where your on destroy event goes, where you're, like it, it gives you that structure. And it gives you the documentation so you can follow it. And also larger frameworks like Vue.js, like React, have a lot of extra content on top of that where people go through and show you how to create a project. And that kind of builds this other library of help and other library of structured help. Because again, if you have a new employee that you need to get spun up and you want to make sure your code base is remains consistent, and we talked a little bit about this a couple of weeks ago, I think, um, you need to give them some sort of guidance because they don't know what to do. Like you can tell them, hey, look at our code and write it the same, right? But if it's just a bunch of JavaScript functions that aren't organized and uh, like, you know, 10 different people are writing them, it's going to be tough to maintain that structure. But if it's a Vue.js project, a lot of it's going to be component-based, so single-based components. A lot of it's going to be in MVVC uh, architecture for the, you know, you know, model view controller uh, kind of kind of way. It's, it's, so it's going to be written in a way that's consistent across the board. Um, there's going to be some variances, obviously, but it's a lot more consistent. So when you get a new coder to come in there, they're going to take a look. And if they know Vue.js or they know JavaScript frameworks in general, they're going to know what you're talking about. And they're going to start writing it in, in a similar sense, a lot quicker than if it was just, you know, a random, your own designed framework that you've only ever come up with and your team kind of adapted or something like that. And and with that being said, too, if if, if you're a person that if if you're a person that just you know straight up makes websites and so you're you're either using editors or you're using tools to do that and stuff like that, you're probably familiar with WordPress. So to sort of bring it into that world, there's a reason why WordPress has a collection of plugins. It's because WordPress is sort of has like you know effectively one code base. It's one place where where websites can be or web, websites can use as a CMS. It's one program that websites can use as a CMS to to clear that up. And then all these plugins is all these plugins plug into WordPress and that's why there's several types of WordPress. Like all of these, all of these different plugins can effectively be components, if you will. And so, yes, this plugin is coded differently than this plugin, which is coded differently than this plugin, but they all plug into the same place. And effectively you can ref if it's two plugins by the same company and they want them to be more similar, they can refactor later, but there is always that sort of sand, like that sanity level. I don't want to say sanity because it's sanity IO, but like instead of it just being all over the place and unorganized, there's like sort of like that organization layer, if you will, where everything needs to plug in and they know they're calling this, this plugin from, or this uh, API from WordPress, or they're interfacing with this, or they're pulling up, oh, they're making a new menu. Maybe we didn't like that, but it's still going to be right. It's still going to be in our, in our WordPress it's still going to be in our WordPress uh, admin panel. It's not going to be all over the place. And then in, through refactoring and stuff like that, you can bring it. You can same with the Vue.js components. You can effectively sort of bring it all in at the end and be like, okay, let's do a big refactoring session. Let's remove redundancy. Let's remove this. Let's remove that. But effectively, everyone's building it for the same thing. And that's that's essentially what WordPress is doing. Is it's 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 offering a CMS to users in general. People templates 
are coming out that are the visual layer. And then those templates are compatible with a bunch of the plugins. The, all of these things have been coded differently. They use different technologies. They're by different people, but they all come together because WordPress is the thing holding them together. So in this particular case, when you're talking about frameworks to bring it back to that, you have sort of the Vue.js layer or the React.js layer or whatever the heck you're using. You're using that and that brings the team together. Everything is going to be done there's a hundred ways to do everything, but it's all going to have the same sort of readability and the same sort of compatibility, more importantly, together because it's in Vue.js, because it is in React.js, and it's not someone doing something crazy. Like, I remember when we were doing, Mike, you'll remember, when we were doing embedded programming in class, we were all just left to our own devices, which is correct because we weren't working together on a project, right? But there were different solutions per student, completely different solutions. And even solutions where you would go to the teacher and be like, hey, I have this global variable that's tracking all this because I thought it'd be easier. I remember I did this. And I was like, I don't know what the hell is going on here. And even he was confused. Even though he's like a an expert in in programming and an expert in, in embedded, there's a million and one solutions. The only commonality was, in this case, our little uh, microcontroller that we were using. But it was still just effectively, I think it was just C. So it was effectively just C code written out with no sort of sanity level. The only commonality was, oh, this is C. But if we were doing something specific like, um, I know that AVR, that's not to get into the weeds, but like AVR was the people that made our uh, AVR Atmel, whatever. They are the ones that made the microcontroller. If we had used, I think they had like an API set. If we had used their code, their proprietary methods on doing things and their function and their um, examples as a way to structure everyone's code, most of the people in the class would have had a similar solution or at least one that was more readable across the class. But because the class was left to their own devices, obviously in a learning environment, that's what you want. But because we were left to our own devices and we had no like sanity level at that, you know, like our, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but our sort of framework would have been the AVR stuff that we had where they had very specific examples and they had their own IDE and I think they had their own commands. I think it was APIs back then. I don't really remember that that well. That's why I'm saying this. Like, But if everyone had used that instead of just straight up C code, we would have all had a relatively similar, if not the same solution in many cases, and it would have at least been more readable. So that's effectively what Vue.js is doing. That's effectively what's happening is, is it's just saying like there's another level of commonality beyond just the fact that everyone's using JavaScript because there's a million ways to call things. There's a million ways. I did a quiz recently for a client. I did a quiz recently that runs purely on JS because they don't they didn't want to track anything. It's just purely for the user and letting them control their own data, of course. And so I showed Mike how I did it and he was like, oh, I would have did it this way, but like my way is fine. And it's and like, sure, maybe his way is more efficient because he does JS more than I do. But the point is, is mine works. It works, you know, within the performance level that we want. It's not like it's, I mean, not that it would be insecure. It runs on the person's machine because <laughs> it's just JS. But like, it's not insecure or like fudging the numbers somehow or something crazy. So as long as it's working the way it's supposed to, then who cares? But given that we had to use Vue.js, let's say in that project, I would have probably did it closer to Mike's solution, let's say, if we were both using Vue.js. So it's just bringing another level of commonality more than just the language into play. Yeah, no, that was good. I, I like all those examples. Uh, the the WordPress one is good. So the plugins, for instance, that is kind of a framework structure because if you're a plugin, a WordPress plugin developer, 
almost guaranteed you'll have a way easier time going in and reading another WordPress plugin developer's code than you would just someone that's creating a JavaScript plugin for like a website, right? Just a straight JavaScript plugin. Because the even though, yes, their commonality is there, there is some JavaScript, there is some HTML, there is some CSS and all that. There's just this layer on top of that, like Matt was saying, that adds commonality and adds structure to your code. And that's what gives the easier and maintainable code bases when you're working on a larger team on a larger project and stuff like that. The other benefit of that is uh, for something like Vue.js or React, they have component architecture. So when you have a, a larger team, when you have more people working on it, to be able to do stuff in parallel is important. And a component architecture allows you to do that. So where you can give someone, for instance, I would give Matt the nav bar because he loves nav, bar, nav bars, and he could have just the nav bar component with all the styling, all the JavaScript, the functionality, all the routing is just located in that nav bar. And I could be doing the list view. So I'm going to be showing all the array items from the API. And when we check our stuff into the project, we're not going to have any sort of merge conflicts because we're working on completely separate files that all maintain their functionality separately like that. And they can communicate with each other. We can build something called a, a store or a state management system, and that will communicate. But again, those, those are the things that... Uh, allow you to have that kind of flexibility. So you're allowed to communicate with with each other because, you know, in one of the benefits of putting it all in one JavaScript file is, you know, they're all sharing the same resources. They're all sharing the same variables. So it's easy communication. But this also allows that and allows it in a more safe way because you're not, you don't have a massive JavaScript file where you might call the same variables over and over again. Uh, you have smaller files that are locally scoped and you're only communicating when you absolutely need to. So that's another thing for maintaining the code base. So moving on from that, though. No, uh, actually, I'll, I'll throw yeah, something ahead. in. Sorry, I thought you were mm -hmm. going to expand on that. But one thing I didn't want to throw in, too, is not to get into the weeds on APIs, but there's a reason why APIs exist. Obviously, for data, if if someone has a massive database of, like, all the cameras out there or something, and you want to pull that data in, it'd be ridiculous for you to go and read up on every camera and make your own database. That's one big one. But another one, especially when it's, lo when it's a smaller database, local than a team, is when you want that data to be structured like that every single time, all the time, and used correctly all every time throughout the thing, throughout the, the program, the app, the web app, whatever it is. That way, you know that when somebody pulls in, you know, what is the latest camera release? Mike doesn't have an older data set where he updated last Tuesday, but I updated today. And so my latest camera data is different than Mike's latest camera data, which can then have conflicting things in the UI and have people be like, well, which one's the latest camera? What's going on here? Having like that one, that one, again, a point of commonality, that one place where one person or whatever, one team is assigned to update the API. They updated what the latest camera was. And then the people that work on the user interface that pull the information from the, a the API are one pulling in the same data, but then also pulling in the correct data. And they don't, there's no difference in command. So if Mike comes to read my nav bar, because I have a small widget that says the latest camera is this, and he's, he has like an article on it where he's pulling in the camera's name. He can come in and see what, how my widget works and generally knows what's going to be displayed there because he's familiar with using that API. That's an, it's just another point of commonality that allows larger teams to work together. Yep, exactly. And again, it's that extrapolation of logic from logic to, uh, being able to use it. That's that's the main thing. So you're you're removing another an extra step. So instead of writing a, essentially a driver to to uh, 
interact with that API. You're just using the API that's already provided. So uh, with that being said, uh, to move on to the next topic is easier to add complex features. So we've already talked about kind of like the list view, uh, being able to do a for loop right inside of the HTML. That's really great. There's another example kind of like showing and hiding divs can be done with a lot of uh, intelligence inside of a Vue.js framework. Um, so for instance, like to give an example, in regular JavaScript, what you'd have to do to show and hide an element based on a result of a you know API call. So if you're calling for um, movies and the movie comes back as being like Jurassic Park, so it has like a whatever dinosaur genre and has sequels. And what you need to do if it has sequels and it shows that it has sequels in the in the response, uh, you need to show an element that shows the rest of the sequels, right? So in JavaScript, you would have to, again, interact with that API, pull it in, check if it has that uh, that sequels thing, and then essentially find the element that you're trying to show and hide using a document.getElementById or document.getElementById.className, however you want to do it, and then show and hide it right in the JavaScript. So you're disconnecting from the actual structure of the co- of the HTML. You're doing it st- squarely in the JavaScript in a separate file uh, with barely any link between them other than the actual class name or ID name. With Vue.js, it's as simple as, again, using the built-in structure to get the API and then using that variable, that API variable that you've already created and it's reactive inside the HTML code and then inside the HTML code using a function called vif that can you can call any sort of uh, element and just checking inside there right where write the element that you're actually going to be showing and hiding uh, if there is a SQL or not. So it's those kinds of things that again add not only to make it easier to code but also make it more maintainable because when a new developer comes in there they immediately know what's going on. It's a VIF on the SQL div and it's being powered on if there's a SQL. Done. Whereas if they go into a, Vue, a regular JavaScript file, they're going to read through the file and they're going to see, okay, there's a SQL uh, function here that it's pulling in the SQLs and then it's going to be checking a, 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 you know, a class or an ID. Okay, now I have to go into the HTML, check where that class or ID is uh, and then find it in there. So totally doable, obviously, like it's not that hard, but it adds an extra step. It adds some more complexity. It's not as readable. So just an example for uh, for easier UI manipulation. There's plenty of other things that you can do uh, with something like Vue.js that is a little bit more complicated with JavaScript. So especially with reactive content. So if you have content that's constantly changing. So for instance, you have a user account and that user account adds like points or something like that as you walk through the, the app. Uh, and you need to display different things based on the points. You can have reactive elements inside of Vue.js or React uh, that automatically update based on the user's variable, like a user variable. And it can all be set inside the HTML side of it, like the, the template side. So it's directly affecting the actual component or the actual div structure that it needs to affect without having to do an external JavaScript call to, to affect it and to pull it in. So again, just easier to deal with reactive content. Uh, the templates, the templating syntax is just standard, you know, handlebars kind of syntax, and it's easy to read, easy to implement. Another thing that it's easy to do, and I've said it before, is uh, real-time API updates. So anytime that you have, like maybe you're looking for scores for a, a sports team, like you're watching hockey and you need to find the, and you, and you want to have the scores on, and you want to pull in the scores, that's going to be a real-time update. 
And anytime there's real-time data, again, that reactive element to it where you can just bind it directly to the div element that you want it to show on, it removes that other complexity of having to, you don't have, you don't need any JavaScript for that essentially. You're just, you need to pull in the data and then that data automatically updates the UI. There's no other JavaScript there. Obviously in the background, uh, Vue.js, when Vue.js compiles, it's doing some JavaScript, but you don't have to worry about writing it. Um, transitions is another thing it, it can help with. It has transition functionality, so you can put transition tags around divs, and then based on some functionality, it'll actually do the transitions for you and set up all the transition classes that you need, which is convenient, and you have some API access to transitions like timing and stuff like that. So, again... Tra- transitions, sorry. Transitions as in like CSS transitions, like yes. fading in and stuff Animations like that? Animations and transitions, yeah. Fading okay, in and cool. stuff and sliding in, <clears throat> bouncing in, whatever. All, all the different transitions. So it's like it, it's all these different little things that all combine into really helping you code faster and get your product out faster and more maintainable. So moving on, uh, pre-built tooling is a really big one for me So and my team right now. Uh, it's a small team. We're kind of junior. Like there's a lot of new guys. There's an intern. There's a junior web develop, uh, junior front end developer. Uh, we have contractors come on all the time. So it's the power of JavaScript or power of a framework or power of uh, Vue.js. I mean, uh, it gives you a lot of stuff built in. So it gives you a Webpack configuration built in. So you can add Webpack plugins. You can add whatever you want in Webpack. It's already set up for you. You don't have to write it yourself. I don't know if anyone's ever tried to write a Webpack config themselves. I, I've done it like maybe once and it was kind of a pain. I didn't like it. Um, so I like that it gives you that and you can just add on to it and edit it and whatever. Uh, it gives you a dev server. So again, it gives you live reloading right built into right built into the CLI, right built into uh, Vue.js. So again, anytime you save uh, your, your stuff in your IDE of choice, it'll automatically update the web page uh, for, for you that's tied to it. So the local host which is really nice when you're developing really quickly. And again, all of these things are absolutely achievable if you know what you're doing with JavaScript and Webpack, but this takes away that element. Like you don't need to know what you're doing with Webpack to be able to code in Vue.js. That's not a requirement, absolutely not a requirement, but it does give you the functionality of Webpack and you don't have to do a deep dive into it. You don't need to do, you don't need to know what you're doing with any sort of server. You don't need a LAMP server. You don't need a MAMP server. You don't need a XAMPP, whatever. You don't need to go into and, you know, edit the HT docs file, edit HT access and all that. That's not required. You don't have to go into that part. You can just go code. So that's a huge advantage in my eyes. And Um, and I think that's mm -hmm. a, that's a point of, or I guess it's a term of confusion as well, where, and I always forget this for some reason, but the dev server to me, I always think like, whoa, what the hell is that? But realistically, you know, if you're, if you, if you've gone through the sort of the traditional or the, usually the traditional, uh, learning of, of, um, of web development, learning like the vanilla of everything, HTML, CSS, JS, and then some little bit of PHP, probably, you know, that XAMPP is just effectively running your PHP. That's normally what people use it for, for the most part. Maybe they use the SQL if they have a database of some sort, but for the most part, but like the dev dev server, that, that terminology, just to sort of like bring light, light to it or bring a spotlight to it is, it seems like it's such a complex thing, but it's effectively just you having like a traditional website that has a little bit of PHP and you know how like, for example, when and this is the this is the, how Mike and I learned, where we learned the the vanilla HTML CSS JS didn't have PHP, had to have some dynamic components in our site. Like maybe we just wanted to pull in our navbar from another file, 
easy way to do that is just to use a PHP include. So then we change all of our files from .html to .php. I'm sure people have done this time and time again. Then we go to like include our navbar. And then we're like, wait a sec. Why doesn't it just run when we double click? It's because you need a server. That server is effectively in that situation, your dev server. So it's simple or it seems more simple maybe because we did it gradually. When you're talking about XAMPP, it just seems like such a simple thing. Like, oh, I just turned on Apache. Now my computer can run PHP effectively. You're actually going into the server and stuff. I'm not going to get into the weeds, but like you're effectively using a server now, but that is a dev server. Think about like the Apache part of XAMPP as you're effectively running a dev server. That's what that piece of terminology means when we're talking about something like Vue.js. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it doesn't actually run PHP, the dev server that's built in, uh, but it runs, it just, it, it kind of handles the connection between your code and the browser. And again, this is what, JS too. This like is that's JS. Why. Yeah, that's, that's why, why it, doesn't that's why. it doesn't need Apache. It doesn't need Apache, but there are ways to connect it to like to an Apache and a PHP. Like if you download and install PHP yourself, you can connect it to the built-in live server, and it'll do all the auto updating and all that for you. So it 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 has a lot of functionality and a lot of other stuff that you can dive deep into. Absolutely, but you don't need to to start get started essentially because the pre-built tooling is really good. Um, the the view the view CLI uh, that's a really easy way to create your template project. So it it gives you the ability to kind of add the initial core of features that you need right away and give you like a hello world project for view. And that's really important uh, to get started quickly. Obviously. Um, you can add your router in there right away. You can add your Vuex state management library in there right away, depending on how complex and big your project is. That that does save you a little bit of time. Uh, so stuff like that, like it's nice to have those kinds of things built in where you don't have to go in and find out how to do every step of what I was just saying if you're building it and maintaining it yourself. Um, so with that, they also have great debugging. So... Uh, like it's part of the tools, but there's extensions that you can download for Chrome, for Firefox, all that, that kind of give you really in-depth debugging into the Vue uh, ecosystem. So you can check whatever is accessing your, your state management system. You can check like, you know, it, the state management is essentially your components communicating with each other. Um, and there's like a central hub that I call the state management or the store system where they, where they uh, communicate. And having insight into when a call was made to that hub, what the call was, what the output was, like all that built into this extension for Chrome is really, really cool. And it gives you like so much, so much, it makes it so much easier to debug. Um, the other thing that it gives you right out of the box is just being able to go into your files and put breakpoints in, uh, into any of your component files. It's like, that's what Webpack kind of allows you to do, the built-in Webpack config which is really convenient for debugging because essentially what Vue.js or React is doing is it's compiling your code into regular JavaScript um, and CSS and JS, but it's also minifying it, making it more uh, making it more server ready and stuff like that. So it's, it's not very readable in its like production form. But when you're developing, it allows you to have this feature where you can go in and the Webpack will link your regular Vue.js files, .view files to the actual on... Uh, on-site JavaScript files and allow you to put the breakpoints in where you need them and see where all the states are and stuff like that. So it's a really important aspect of it. And without it, I think I wouldn't be able to use it. That's how important it is. Like if there wasn't this connection between the view, the .view files and the JavaScript, 
I, I don't, it would be a game changer. Like it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. So you need that great debugging. Absolutely. Um, now one, one mm-hmm. question I do have for you actually, Mike, is it also like minifying and stuff, but it also does, I think it's Babel or something where it, it's for like older browsers and stuff like that. So you write once, you know, how in like in CSS, just for the listener, in CSS, you might do a, a property, use a property that isn't supported in a browser in which you wish to support. And so you need effectively a fallback command or something that the other browser can actually use. And so it might make the UI look a little different, but look like presentable, obviously. Like pres- the elephant in the room is that it, we're talking about IE in most cases here. Yep. So, or Safari. Yeah. Or, well, there's also that too, in some cases, not mm-hmm. all cases, but in some cases. Mm-hmm. So the, I'm asking you, Mike, this thing effectively, you write it once. And then I don't know if you choose a list of browsers you want to have compatible, but this thing effectively will translate your code so that it's compatible with like X subset of browsers. Yeah, so it has Babel built in, the Babel built into the Webpack uh, config. So the JavaScript, the JavaScript side of it can be compiled down to very like low end, like, you know, IE 11 or IE 10 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe, I believe you can set that as you want. Like you can set the Babel config to be different uh, based on what you want. But I've, I've never played around with it because we're mostly developing for newer browsers. But again, that's only JavaScript. You were talking about CSS. CSS, you would have to handle yourself um, or use a CSS framework like, for instance, Tailwind. I believe that has some fallback to it uh, and stuff like that. So there is, it gives you that ability right out of the box and it kind of sets you up to get most browsers, but I believe you can dial it in. I have a question too, actually. So like what what is the status, I guess, and like this is probably already known, but I just don't know it is what is the status of what people are doing with Edge? The reason why I say that is because if you're running consumer Windows 10, of which if you're running Windows 10, you more than likely are, you are more more or less jerry-rigging aside, forced into doing updates. A recent update rolled out, and maybe still rolling out, but anyway, hit here in Canada, of which Edge was then transferred over to New Edge. So I did this a while ago manually, but now that was included in Windows Update. And so two of my family members' computers now have the new Edge. And to them, they don't know it's any different. But obviously there's going to be some, usually Edge cases, but some Edge cases in which original Edge would render something different than the new the new Edge, the Chromium Edge, if you will. How are we, as the web dev community, treating that? Me personally, I just don't care about Edge. I don't know whether yeah. that's bad. <laughs> I I don't know whether that's a bad thing, bad way to handle it, but I am personally on the camp of unless I, you have a specific reason mm-hmm. for people using Edge, like in an office or something, and a lot of your audience is that, I literally don't care. Yeah. And the reason that I don't care as well, like I, I agree with you there, is because Edge for the most part was fairly compatible with whatever we were writing. Exactly. So it so wouldn't be really broken. It would be like, oh, this exactly. is left aligned instead of centered, which is exactly. usually not even the case. Like usually it's fine. Yeah. Usually it's fine. It would be like fonts are different or colors mm-hmm. are slightly off. Like it would just be like those kinds of things. And I don't care. Like, again, the the user base of Edge isn't large enough. And, and they're the, being the forced target over audience. now. Yeah, exactly. They're being forced over. So it doesn't it doesn't technically matter. And I believe they're being forced over on all platforms, including Windows 7. 
I could be wrong on that. Or Windows 8, Damn. maybe I'm maybe maybe Windows 8 is the one I'm thinking of, but uh, it's not just Windows 10 that's forcing. So um, yeah, so I again, Windows 10 is now uh, for the people that don't know is Chromium based. So anything that you build for Chrome should work perfectly fine for Edge, uh, which is nice for developers. Not so nice for uh, like maybe you know uh, the industry as a whole because now there's only kind of one or two big players i don't know if firefox would be considered a big player i guess it would yeah they'd be a big player absolutely but it's essentially it's safari and chrome and uh Uh, opera which is no opera is not a big player opera opera has gone through like three or four different engines no one cares about opera at all opera like opera mobile kind of like had a blip for a while i remember there was like a sort of a slew of videos about them and talking about how they were super viable and then in terms of media coverage anyway i just personally haven't seen anything in my youtube feed so I think it may be have died, may have died down. Although I don't, I guess I don't really see videos about Firefox either. Although I do know that Firefox is like Firefox has a developer edition, and I absolutely do test my sites in Firefox. So uh, Firefox has now turned to Chromium as well. So, oh, sorry, not Firefox. That would be a disaster. But uh, say, what is going on? Opera, like? Opera is Chromium based. Opera has transferred over. Yes, that's why no one cares. Um, well, which makes I'll, sense. I'll be honest. The new Edge, double thumbs up. I, yep. I no longer use Chrome, meaning Google Chrome, on anything, including my phone. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, I, I've known a few people that switched over already. Like I've I've had a, like at least three conversations in the last couple months about people that have fully switched over. And yeah, it's a it is a good browser. I just haven't. I, I'm I'm kind of set in my ways with Chrome right now. Um. Having said that, let's move on to the next point here, which is a large team environment. So this kind of um, repeats the maintainable code bases a little bit, but uh, essentially it's a little bit easier for new developers to learn a framework rather than a custom-built JavaScript entity that you would create or maybe your own custom framework that you would create because there's so much documentation out there. Like a big part of having a good framework is the documentation. You should be able to go in there and find anything without having to go to Google. Like Google should be your second source. Documentation should be your first source. That's how good, that's how you know when documentation is good. Obviously some edge cases, you're going to still need to go to Google, but the advantage of having that framework is Google also has a lot of content, a lot of Stack Overflow articles, a lot of YouTube videos, stuff like that. So again, it gives you that benefit of that structure. And because of that structure, a lot of people are driven to it. And those people generate a lot of content and there's a lot of like, you know, help, help in that section. So it's just easier to get up and running than just going from scratch. Um, the other thing is it's obviously easier to maintain extensibility then. So as a code base progresses and you need to get another plugin or something, or you need to get another uh, component done, or you need to get whatever, like you need to add more functionality. Um, it's easier to do that in a structured environment because there's just so much being built for it and so many people that have probably run into the exact same problem that you have that have created something that's usable right out of the box. Now, you shouldn't use this for every little thing. Like if you're doing like, you know, a one plus one operation, you shouldn't be going and looking for a plugin. Uh, that's something that I kind of <laughs> preach a lot. And a lot of people do, though. That's I know, the thing. Yeah. Like as soon as they think of functionality, they're like, oh, is there a plugin that can do that? And I always have to bring add them my numbers in. together? <laughs> yeah. Like there's, yeah, there's stuff built into JavaScript that absolutely can do a lot of the stuff for you. And you should always reach for a first party, like something that's already built into JavaScript before you look for a plugin. But a lot of the time, there's just some things like, you know, an autocomplete, for instance, in a, in a text box. That's not something that's built into JavaScript. 
So that's something that I would search for a view autocomplete plugin. And I have done that and I've used it and it saved me a lot of time. Now, have I had bad experiences with plugins? 100%. I've had a lot of bad experiences with them. So you need to vet your plugins. You need to make sure you need to go to their GitHub pages, uh, make sure that they're, they've been at least active. They don't have a million issues that are critical to yourself. Like do your vetting process, do your testing process before you go in and pitch it to the team or, you know, invest a lot of time into it that then has to be, you know, re- retaken or, you know, ripped out. It's going to happen regardless, but you, you want to mitigate that situation. I should, we should do an episode on like plugins, plugins. in general, because, because I have there's a lot, a lot to, to talk about there. Yeah. I have like a there's ton even like misidentification, say. like to you, autocomplete might be this yes. thing, but autocomplete could be so much more to someone who focuses on autocomplete. Like Absolutely. for example, the plugin author is a big one, right? Yeah. Like they, they could have, 2000 types of autocomplete and you're just like whoa i just kind of wanted want a list of, yeah. you know without thinking about it yeah and that's it and you're describing the exact situation that i've had like a, literally an autocomplete like I've, i went into a plugin this is like this is doing way too much for me like i don't need this you don't it's need like 10 so megs overhead. of like machine learning yeah. like oh man he did like three key strokes and like you know crazy like just just too much it's gone too far yeah Oh, and then and then also misclassifications of plugins where like you're searching for autocomplete, but really what you want is a live search. That's yeah, okay. Yep. That's another thing. Like and I've again I've run into that personally several times. So again, it's just like there's a lot to talk about the plugins. So I guess stay tuned. We'll put that on our docket. Uh there's a lot to say. Vetting plugins is a really big one that I want to talk about because it will save you a lot of time. Um Having said that, let's move on to the final little thing here, which is rich ecosystem. So again, and talking about plugins, a lot of the time with Vue.js, uh, they have first-party plugins, which is great because we know they're going to be supported. We know that as the framework upgrades, so it's actually going up through an upgrade right now from version 2 to version 3, those first-party plugins are going to be the first things to upgrade. So if you stick to first-party plugins for the most part, you should have an easy time migrating your code base. So it's really nice. Um, it's a big difference between React and Vue is that Vue has the state management, the templating, and the routing all built in uh, as first-party plugins. And you can, uh, I think some of them you can add or remove. Uh, but with React, it only gives you the reactivity component and you have to you know, add your own JSX templating. You have to add a separate third-party um uh, like I think it's Redux state management or whatever other state management you want to add and a separate third-party routing library. So React kind of gives you a core, whereas Vue gives you the whole ecosystem. And both are very good in, in different ways, but that's kind of a big difference that I see. And it also obviously accelerates your development when you have those things built and are there good to go. Um, the other thing it helps you with is building PWAs, for instance. So there's a PWA plugin right into the Vue CLI that will give you a fully packaged PWA application right out the gate. So the, your Hello World application is a PWA right away. So all you have to do is go in there, you know, add your own icons, change some text around for the titles, uh, and add, like, if you need to change the way a, the cache performs, um, that's another thing you can do, but I don't want to delve too much into PWAs because I think we will have another episode coming up soon uh, where we do a deep dive on it. And in fact, I believe we're going to have some Twitch streams where we're going to be deep diving into PWAs as well. Uh, we have an old project called No BS News for Reddit, um, and we're going to be we, we've converted like that's already a PWA. But what we want to do is we want to make sure that it's a, a modern PWA. So it works on iOS devices, Android devices perfectly, Windows devices perfectly. And then what we want to do is submit it to the Android store through their PWA submission portal. 
right away. So we want to kind of go through that process and we'll be doing that live on the Twitch, on the Twitch stream slash HTML things. Um, so to go on from there, it, it makes it easier to add other frameworks. So like you can have other frameworks on top of a JavaScript framework, for instance, Tailwind. Tailwind's a CSS framework. Uh, I add it all the time. Now it's it's actually pretty simple to add, especially if you're adding it from the very get-go. Again, in the in the CLI, the, the initial configuration of your project, that hello world part, you can add Tailwind right into it and it'll do all the configuration for you. Later, like after, if you haven't added Tailwind, it's also pretty simple. Like you just have to follow a guide. Um, but again, it gives you that flexibility now, to add anything I have a question want. about this. Yeah. How, how, how much of this is Vue.js adding tailwind for example versus npm like to it's, me i've always it's thought it's pack. more npm doing the lifting but maybe i'm wrong because you, you know what i mean you like npm add whatever blah 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 blah. so npm is part of it but npm just puts the files on your system right 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 what ad, what actually adds it into the uh project is webpack Okay, okay. So it's like three different things. And Vue.js then interprets it the way it needs to be interpreted to for you to access it within the Vue.js construct and then put it into the global scope of Vue.js. That's the Vue.js part is putting it into the global scope. And everything else is kind of handled through NPM and Webpack. Okay, all right. So, But it, again, it gives you the whole infrastructure to do that in kind of one command. So you don't have to worry about how Webpack is doing that. You don't have to worry about how NPM is pulling stuff in. You just have to worry about like declaring it the way it's supposed to be declared inside the main JS file for Vue to see it. That's it. Okay. All right. Yeah. If that makes sense. Um, but yeah, that's about it. I mean, like, it's a lot of reasons to use it. Uh, the thing that I wanted to do later on maybe is do a another episode on when not to use a JavaScript framework. And then we can talk about like, you know, basic websites and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, that's that's when to use a JavaScript framework. So I think I'll pass it off to Matt for anything that he wants to add or if we want to move on to web news. I think, uh, well, one thing I do want to say is I think we need to do an episode on Webpack. Because Webpack is one of those things where, like, for me, I just don't use it. And so it's always, like, it's always, like, a paradox wrapped in, like, an enigma. Like, I always hear it, and I'm just like, what is, like, what is it? And I could obviously just look it up, but it's just one of those things I just haven't really touched. Or if I have touched, it's just in passing, just because it's not really my my role. It hasn't, my, my, my role hasn't touched it, you know what I mean? So I just don't really know what it is, and I hear it all the time. People bring it up, and then I always hear people complain, or people complain about it, like, complain about it. Or complain about its complexity, or I hear people praise it. I hear all all across, so I'm just sort of like hearing about this thing that I never use all the time. So maybe it's something to something to take a look at uh, for a future episode. That would be my sort of capstone to it. Um, yep, I agree. I think we should. Uh, so Webpack. I'm just you know what you know what I'm doing right Trello. now. To the Trello. I am actually like legitimately on the Trello, just adding all the topics that we just talked about. Hell yeah, do it. Yeah. Just because uh, we're otherwise we're going to forget and it's going to not benefit us a, or you. Yeah. yeah, totally different episode. Then like later we'll be like, man, we should yeah. do a webpack episode. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yep. Uh, but this week's web news, let's jump right in. I think we'll do uh, we'll do the old Samsung ecosystem. So Samsung recently had an event. Samsung unpacked, I believe it was called. They revealed their new Note 20 devices, uh, new Galaxy Buds. They're these little bean looking things. Uh, I believe they showed a new watch and a, and they showed a new tablet and they showed a whole bunch of stuff, a whole bunch of goodies, including the ecosystem. So I want to talk about a Samsung ecosystem 
as a as a whole. So in general, the Samsung ecosystem more or less is their phones, uh, more or less the modern-ish phones. So the phones, tablets, uh, they're linked to PC. I'm including that in there because they're because of their partnership with Microsoft. Uh, their watch and then the buds, of course. So this this is obviously more or less self-explanatory to an extent. So for example, if you have a Samsung tablet and you have a Samsung phone, you have the new Note 20 or you have the Note whatever, uh, you can connect your tablet and your phone so you can take phone calls from the tablet. You can also do, you know, there's functionality like that in there. Uh, the watch, obviously, it's basically a notifications machine, but it has other functionality. There's apps and there's apps for the, the uh, as a, there's an app ecosystem itself for the watch. So you can go and download whatever third-party apps you need or whatever it is. But for the most part, watches, at least in my experience, are basically just notification machines. And then the buds, which are uh, integrated, of course, and they've been integrated for a couple of generations now of Samsung products where... Basically, I, I have Galaxy Buds. I literally open the Galaxy Buds beside my phone. My phone's like, there's Galaxy Buds. You want to pair them or whatever? Yep, done. And that's it. And that's the most seamless thing I've ever done in my life, more than likely. And uh, it's super, super freaking useful, which is awesome. So, uh, and, the, and the Buds are awesome. I have first generation Buds and they're they're awesome. I use them all the time. Uh, good battery life, everything else. So, I mean, not to, this is not sponsored by Samsung. I'm just literally giving... Uh, giving my opinion on it. Uh, there's also Samsung DeX to keep in mind as well. So Samsung DeX is basically like using your phone uh, as a PC. So you can connect it to a monitor and you can use like a mouse and uh, a keyboard and you can use your phone in sort of a desktop-like user interface. Uh, this also works on computers. Like you can have DeX show up as a program on Windows, for example, uh, as well as it also works on Samsung tablets as they showed off in their presentation. And then there's more kind of outreach things, but there's more parts of the Samsung ecosystem, which are things like smart things where Samsung also sells TVs. So if you get a TV that's compatible with smart things to an extent or compatible with some of the functionality, you'll have to read up on your own TVs because Samsung has so many friggin' TVs, so many TV offerings. But they have different functionality with things like uh, smart things, which is Samsung's um, smart home ecosystem items, for example. So they have TVs, like I said, uh, in varying degrees. They have smart lights, leak detectors, etc., etc., etc. So I kind of just wanted to discuss this and how this affects things. Now, just to get it right off my chest immediately, I think I, ch- I chose right. <laughs> So I went from BlackBerry to an LG G4 uh, when BlackBerry started kind of going uh, going away and away from mainstream. Um, so I went from a BlackBerry Passport, used that thing for a couple of years, went to an LG G4 just because it was cheap because I was going to try Android more or less, and then went from the G4 to the S8 and decided, that's it, I'm just going to go with, I like Samsung phones, they look nice, I'm just going to go with a Samsung phone. And uh, total fluke that they parted with Microsoft because I'm the exact same way with my computer where I'm like, I'm just going to use Microsoft services. I got my Microsoft account. I got my my OneDrive. I got my Game, Pla- Game Pass Ultimate. I got my Xbox. I got my, my full Microsoft ecosystem. I even have a Windows tablet, which just so happens to be a Samsung tablet as well. I've gone full. <laughs> and so they've, they're now integrated with each other. And so not, not, I'm not gloating that I chose right. I'm saying I'm happy that I chose correctly in that I'm now under this umbrella, this ecosystem. And what's super exciting about this is, so right now, looking at my uh, taskbar on my computer, or my Windows 10 computer, I have uh, Teams, WhatsApp, and Messages, like Android Messages, SMS, because I don't use the Samsung one. 
Now, um, I think I'm going to be able to get rid of that, which is kind of exciting. Uh, with this new link to PC, they're going to be allowing you to open up multiple uh, apps. And this is a product. This is a thing that's coming. It's not out yet. But uh, with link to PC, it's been around for a while, but there's an enhancement coming in which you're, you will be able to open apps, multiple apps specifically, and you'll be able to just open and run them on your computer. Uh, which is huge because if I'm able to get, because you can do messages and stuff like this natively just in the link to PC app without actually opening the mobile app. But I think what's going to be awesome is, is I'm not going to have to rely on like the Wi-Fi there and all the rest of it. I'm going to be able to just use those apps as they are, including Instagram. Like I can use Instagram now, which is a mobile app only. And I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I've said it in the past. I don't know if I've said it on this show, but I've just said it in the past to people is I've always wanted my there to be a, a sort of a separation, and I don't know whether the, whether this is weird, but I've wanted there to be a separation of my computer is sort of my workhorse. It plays games, it plays files, it runs work, it sends like emails. There's a bit of communication in there, of course, but I want my phone to be like sort of my communication machine, and I just listed off a few chat apps that I have open, and that's not even the end of it. There's a bunch still on my phone, and there's some even on my computer, like Skype isn't open right now, but I technically have a Skype. There's uh, Messenger. I have Messenger. I have the Messenger Windows 10 app, like from their from the Microsoft Store. But now, I think I can route probably just IM is what I'm looking for, instant messaging. But I can now route IM through my phone and have my phone be my IM machine again. And not just when I'm on the go. I'm just going to be able to, instead of, instead of me dexing or anything like that, instead of getting into the weeds on that... I can just sort of run this link to PC and have it connected with my PC and my settings. And that's, it's like more of an official sense because now the Microsoft and Samsung are partnered. I can have this sort of really rich functionality and just use WhatsApp as WhatsApp, for example. Now there's nothing wrong with the WhatsApp app on the desktop. There's nothing wrong with the messages. I have the PWA installed uh, for Android messages, SMS. But I just think that it's going to be nice to have one, like, I'm going to have the Link to PC app open, or whatever the heck they call it. Like, I don't know what the app itself is called. I think it's called the Link to PC, but regardless, not getting the weeds of that. Get, have that Link to PC app open, and then it'll just have, like, all my stuff there. I think that's going to be awesome. And it's just going to be one, one thing where I can manage all my stuff, and... Hopefully it'll integrate into, I haven't seen all the functionality, whether it integrates deeply with Windows 10 notifications, which aren't very great, but like maybe they will be great with this thing. I don't know. So I'll see. Maybe I'll even, maybe I'll even get rid of Android messages and, and just use like the Samsung messages so that it just comes in as messages. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, or maybe it works with Android messages. I don't know whether, how that works, but yeah, I'm excited enough to jump right on this to try it once it, Mm -hmm. once everything comes out for sure. Yeah, I think there's a lot of cool things that they announced. Um, one of the things, and I just want to kind of break up this conversation into two pieces. So one piece, cool things that Samsung announces, and then a discussion on ecosystems as a gen- like as a general discussion. Like what, is an ecosystem a good thing? Do you like ecosystems? Like what's the issues with them? But the one thing that I did like about Samsung uh, announce announcements was their decks for Samsung tablets. I thought that that was a pretty crazy thing. Like for me, maybe not like the the most important, but for a regular consumer uh, that just kind of does, you know, browsing, email, all that stuff, 
I feel like that's almost like the perfect device because having decks built into it where they can go from having like a tablet mode to having a full-on desktop desktop environment allows them to just do whatever the heck they want. So they, they can get a keyboard case with a touchpad and use it kind of like a laptop. They can uh, then they can disconnect it, use it like a, a full-fledged tablet. Now, granted, Android tablet UI hasn't been the greatest. Um, it hasn't been updated in a very long time. But for what it is, like just you know carrying it around, watching YouTube and reading comics or whatever on it, uh, or talking on Skype, it does that perfectly fine. And that's like ninety percent of everything else. What it doesn't do well is you know answering messages because it. it it's weird typing on a tablet rather than a phone. Like I would never reach for a tablet to start writing up an email. Like it doesn't make sense to me. But if it had a full desktop experience when I connected my lap, my keyboard to it, why not? Because now I have my laptop designed into it. So now it builds that every like, you know, that window functionality. You can have multiple apps running and anything that you want. Um, in a desktop environment, you can use your keyboard to type up messages and use your touchpad to kind of scroll through everything else. Uh, you don't have to use the touchscreen, but you can. I don't know. I, I like that functionality. I thought that was a little bit underplayed. Um, I think that'll that'll sell tablets for them. Uh, but other things that really stood out to me was like Matt was saying, the link to PC thing where you can open any app on your PC uh, and have multiple apps open at the same time if you have a Samsung phone and a Microsoft uh, device, like a Microsoft uh, computer. You are good to go for kind of fully integrating your phone into your computer, which is something that we've kind of been trying to do for a long time with different varying. Like I remember before I was using something called push bullet. Um, then there was something else. Like I think join was another application where it kind of showed my notifications and allowed me to answer messages to a certain degree. In, but, in a time of, of mostly SMS communication, I might add. Yeah, exactly. Or like just, yeah, exactly. Mostly SMS communication or mostly just like, before WhatsApp had a web app, like it's before before a lot of this other functionality that was built out, it was good, but it was really glitchy. It had a lot of issues, but I still loved it because again, I, I was able to keep my phone off, uh, like not off, but the screen off. And I was able to kind of communicate with everything on my computer and be fully, you know, focused on what I was doing uh, rather than keep reaching for my phone to answer messages. So I think this is the next evolution of that point. I think there is there is going to be some issues with it. And I want to see what those issues are, uh, but I think it's a good step in the right direction. And I, th- I think that they're they're building an ecosystem. Like I think that this is their they have had a lot of steps, but this is their first real step in in their competition with Apple. And that's kind of what I want to transition to is like now that they have all this functionality, are they are they in competition with Apple? Like is this their moment of being like, okay, Apple has had this ecosystem that everyone's talked about for years. Like it's been decades pretty much that people have been like Apple ecosystem. Like I can't, like if I buy an iPhone, I can't have a Windows PC and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Now Samsung is like, well, if you have a Samsung, you can't buy a Mac computer. You have to get a Microsoft computer. But uh, I think you can, I think you can still Dex. I think you can still Dex on a Mac. So Dex is weird where, but, like, but like it's de- not everything. Like it's just like with Apple device, you could still do iTunes on a PC. But it's not. Oh, I see what you're that's saying. not the ecosystem. Like I, I see don't want. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the separation of the ecosystem, and with like you know harboring functionality, like making sure that it is usable on the other system. But it's not the same. Like it's not going to give you one to one functionality if you have a macOS device. So you, like the point of that is 
like the Microsoft partnership, I'm sure that there was some money exchange or some like resources exchange, whatever, like it could have been just uh, an agreement of some sorts that benefits both of them. Uh, the point of it is to drive people to buy Microsoft with Samsung together. Right. And let's say it's the same point of Apple. Like if you buy an iPhone, you get the, the MacBook if, or you get the iPad, like they all talk to each other. So I think this is the, this is that their step. I don't know if it's, I think it's a, I think it's a good thing because I think that Apple has been complacent and been sitting there as the ecosystem. And now with Samsung, maybe they, they will shake it up and try to get people to convert and, to do that, they might have to open up their ecosystem a little bit, which could benefit us. That's the only thing, like, I, that. that's the one positive that I could see out of this. Um, other than the fact that, obviously, in an ecosystem, like, if you buy into it, Matt, you're going to buy fully into the, or you're already bought fully into the Samsung ecosystem. It's, Short of it's the going tablet. to benefit you because the UX of the stuff, like, the UX of how they work together, like, the buds, op you open up the buds and it automatically pairs you... Uh, you know, the it automatically gets your PC like that is going to directly benefit you in a UX way. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you didn't buy into the ecosystem, you would have to do it in a different way, and you'd have to jank around and stuff like that. Yeah, there's certainly there's certainly like benefits, and 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 what's weird that's what's weird about the the Samsung ecosystem versus the Apple one is Apple sort of owns all the pieces. Whereas Samsung's is incorporating Microsoft's Windows 10, you know, incorporating, uh, incorporating to an extent xCloud, for example, or at least advertising for it because they're, they're partnered. So xCloud can, xCloud is like a game streaming uh, service that's, that's going to be coming in later this year. And so it, with Samsung, what you're getting is something that's a little bit more of a hybrid, I suppose, because I don't know what the state of Bixby is, but I don't think it's good. To like, I don't use Bixby, um, but Siri's also not great. Siri's probably better than Bixby, but you're uh, right. Like. I don't even know if that's true because I don't know if that's true because I would say this: Siri functions more reliably, in my experience, than Bixby. It answers your it answers your request. It does all that, but Siri is has less functionality than something like Google Assistant due to Sam's or uh, due to Apple's sort of policies on privacy and stuff like that, and they're nervous about opening things up more like opening like you're not seeing like google was it called duplex you're not seeing google duplex where it's making phone calls from siri for example uh, apple's very privacy based now and they're really worried about that type of stuff to the point where even even apple isn't even allowing xcloud on their service on on the app store at the moment so i i'm sure they'll figure something out or how are that's going to work but um the samsung ecosystem is interesting because there's something so on my phone. It's like they they give me Samsung Mail, but I use Outlook. You know, I don't really use the Samsung Mail, but yet I have the OneDrive app, and I use the OneDrive app I used to to sync my photos. Now I don't do that anymore. I go into the Gallery app because I usually use the Gallery as it's full res, right? I use the Gallery app on my phone, and that now can sync with OneDrive. So now I just sync with OneDrive, and then it automatically was like, hey, you've connected the Gallery. We're like OneDrive told me this. We're the OneDrive app did you've already uh you've turned on the sync to the gallery we're turning off the sync on the OneDrive app obviously because that'd be redundant right so now i just sync via the gallery which i prefer and so it's strange how like it's strange how hybrid it is because like there's the whole one ui home right the one ui launcher but yet i use the microsoft launcher 
And so I have this weird hybrid where I'm using Outlook, the app, but then I'm not really using Mail. But I have this new thing now where, so for example, this is just a, an example of how intertwined this ton of stuff is. My contacts are all on Microsoft services, on my Microsoft uh, accounts, right? Uh, in order to get my contacts onto a phone, I sign in with that email and sync the contacts. Makes sense. I need to fix my contacts because they're just in like disarray, like they're just disorganized. So one of the things that sucks is if you use Outlook, first off, when you compose on Android, you it's all plain text, which is outrageous, but whatever. But what sucks is, is that you can sync your contacts one way. So you can sync it from Microsoft to your phone, right? So your phone's like system book or whatever you want to call it. But you can't do that with personal Outlook accounts to the calendar. You can do it with it with like our work accounts are, are on Microsoft as well. And that can sync to the system's calendar. So now it's like, well, now you have to open Outlook to look at your own calendar. But then there's like certain pun- functionality, like voice functionality and like uh, certain like widgets and stuff like that, that, that I would personally like to use on the Samsung calendar. So I can't get that. So now what I'm doing is I've synced my Microsoft account to the system. So to the, to the mail app on Samsung, the Samsung mail app, I told it not to sync my mail to sync my calendar and to sync my contacts, but don't sync my tasks. I then fill the tasks in with Microsoft to do. And I receive email on outlook. So you can kind of see how I'm in the ecosystem, but I'm already dabbling throughout. And so it's kind of a unique way to do it. Whereas on Apple, the only real way I can see it is I would either use Outlook or I would use Mail and just sync. I can absolutely sync my Microsoft email accounts to Mail, but then it's basically just a Mail client at that point. Whereas, yes, Outlook is that way too, but it's obviously more integrated because it's all Microsoft. Like, for example, I, I've sunk my mail to Samsung Mail before. It works fine. But when I go to search, I can only search within a certain range. But Microsoft knows when I search, it just searches all my history because it's, it, you know, it's just it's an enhancement because it, it is its own ecosystem. It is its own service. And so you're kind of getting closer to that service by using their own service offering, obviously, right? And so, for example, like I said, like I'm fully or almost fully into the Samsung ecosystem, but I have an iPad. I have a new iPad. I don't use, I don't have a Samsung, you know, tab, whatever, tab S4 or on. I don't have one of those like high productivity, whatever, because because the Android side of the Samsung equation on tablet isn't great, as we mentioned. And so anything that I want to sync to my Sam or my iPad has to be synced through either like, you know, the separate apps like Microsoft Teams or whatever chat app I'm using, or I have to sync it via like sort of like that client side thing where I have to sync it to mail or use the Outlook app. But I'm just using the separate apps. I'm not like bringing in the ecosystem. They're not like linked together in a way, if you will. And so I guess that's sort of the unique flavor of being in an ecosystem that is Android based because we're talking about an an ecosystem. You're talking about Samsung's ecosystem. The watches run Tizen or Tizen or whatever they, however they pronounce it. The phone runs Android of which Mike, of which Samsung doesn't even make. They don't make, they don't make Android. That's a Google operating system. They have a virtual assistant of which there's already a virtual assistant. Like the Samsung's virtual assistant Bixby is on a system in which there already is a virtual assistant called Google assistant. So there's already this like layered 
And then effectively, although it's dying and whatever is going to be decommissioned to some extent, as far as I understand it, effectively there's linking to PCs of which there is slash was Cortana. So the reason why I mention this is that the Samsung ecosystem can be seen as sort of a mess, especially in previous years where it's kind of all over the place. It's like, I there's a there's like, I have Bixby and I use this and I use this mail, but like Samsung doesn't offer an email service. So I have to use a third party email service to sign into Samsung mail, the app. Right. And so there's like this weird, like back and forth, if you will, like it's kind of all over the place. Um, although there's, although the openness of it brings solutions. If Apple, if you want to stay in the Apple ecosystem and Apple doesn't offer something, you're screwed. It's already, it's already over. You already have to yep. go through a third party app or something. Now, again, there are solutions like third party apps. So there are sometimes, solutions. sometimes though, yes. not all the time. Not it's all not, the time. That, that, that is the, the disadvantage of a closed ecosystem like Apple's. Which is, which is good and bad for security's sake or whatever. Or like you might be a person that just does what the phone says. So like, you know, you just sort of say like, oh, well, that's how contacts sync. Okay. And you just don't care. You know, whereas me, I'm like hybriding it where I'm syncing it to mail because mail syncs with the system and then having the checkboxes. Like, obviously I've done my homework and then figured that out. Whereas an Apple person wouldn't want to fiddle like that. They wouldn't want to tinker like that. But one thing I do want to mention here with all that sort of messy stuff aside is that this sort of latest unpacked is sort of Samsung. Uh, I hesitate to use this terminology, but it's basically what it is. It's, it, it's them sort of falling into place or maybe finding their footing where they realize that their, their products are the mobile stuff. They're the phone, the watch and the tablet. They're the mobile, they're the mobile people. Yes. Samsung has laptops and TVs and stuff like that. But in terms of, let's just say computing, you can buy a Samsung uh, PC but you absolutely don't have to because you're linking to Windows 10. You're not linking to Samsung on like Samsung running Windows 10, for example. There are like, for example, I had an S8 Plus that used to be my that used my phone until I upgraded to a Note 10 Plus, and there was a thing where I had a Tab Pro S, which is a Wind a Samsung Windows tablet, and I could use my fingerprint scanner on my S8 Plus to unlock Windows, and that was some sort of Samsung specific proprietary thing with a security chip on board, whatever. But the benefits like that, I don't even know if those exist anymore, but the benefits like that are so few and far between that this ecosystem is showing how open it is. It's showing that when you go to the store, if you have no, if you own nothing and you're like, I'm going to refresh my whole digital life, I own nothing. I'm going to start at square one. You can join the Samsung ecosystem in the mobile side. And that's exactly what's happening. You choose your phone, you choose your watch and you choose your, your tablet. So you have a selection there, right? Whether you buy the latest gen, the previous gen, whatever you choose, you choose your thing. Samsung is staying in this, in the mobile side. This is, this is where I think they're, they're finding their footing. They're staying in the mobile side of things. And then they're plugging into the anchored things, if you will. So people are sort of like anchored in windows. Like they use windows. Samsung's not going to release Tizen or whatever for, for PCs. They know that that's not going to work, right? They know that they're not going to be able to overtake windows. So then they plug in via partnership to windows. So now you, now you have a choice of whatever PC you want, right? Because Samsung knows they don't control windows. Samsung knows they need to partner with Windows. And this is where I think the real cleaning up of their ecosystem comes from. 
Android can be seen by especially Apple folk as being a little bit of a mess on a Samsung phone because you have two app stores. You have the Galaxy App Store and you have the Google Play Store. So it's sort of like, which one do you use? And I only use the I use the Galaxy App Store for Galaxy apps like Mail, Calendar, and stuff like that. And if they're giving give me a specific incentive for sometimes they'll give me a coupon code or something in an app, and I'll use the Galaxy App Store. But the prospect of having two app stores to someone like uh, like Apple, like an Apple user, is sort of like, huh? Like what's going on here? And that that for example is one of the pros and cons of the Samsung ecosystem where. The device choice is a no-brainer. Do you want an S-series device or do you want a Note? Like, do you want that S-Pen? Do you want the faster processor? Do you want to have that, like, really, really, really cutting-edge stuff? Well, here's here's our range of products, and they all come in different variants. You know, the S, S-Plus, and the Ultras, or the Note, and then the Note Pluses. Like, that's, like, here here's our selection. Choose one. Here's our selection of watches. Choose one. Here's our selection of tablets. Choose one. But... I can see this already like becoming complex, you know what I mean? Where, but it's like they still don't have the software fully ironed out because it's it's almost like an internal conflict. Like I'm pretty sure there's an app store and a Galaxy app store on the tablet as well, but something like the watch, it isn't running Wear OS. It's running Tizen OS, so they control it all, and it makes the most sense. And so. This is the most put together the Samsung eco- ecosystem has ever been. It's really great to have. I really enjoy it. I'm in it fully. My only complaint, which is a pro and a con, is the Android layer. Because if Tizen had this many mobile apps, we would just be on Tizen. Realistically. And then that would remove the two app stores, remove the two, e- remove the two um, voice assistants. But then you wouldn't have the strength of the Google Assistant. You wouldn't have the strength of the Play Store, right? You wouldn't have those different caveats. You wouldn't have, um, like, you probably wouldn't have Google Photos. You know, Google probably wouldn't make a Tizen OS version of Google Photos. Chances are, maybe they would, but chances are they wouldn't, right? Because they'd be directly competing. So, my ultimate, I guess, sort of capstone is this is the most together the ecosystem has ever been for Samsung, and they're literally advertising it now. I think they started advertising it maybe last year, and it was obviously in existence before this. But this is the first time I'm seeing them push it a bunch. This year, I'm seeing them push it the most I've ever seen them, and last year, it was pushed a little bit more than I've ever seen it even then, I would say. So, th- but this is this is like the big one. Like, this is, I'm like seeing the ecosystem, like they're really bringing it up. Yep. So, I think for me, my capstone would be... Uh that I I like this hybrid approach to the ecosystem because I am more of a tinkerer as much as like I have become less of a tinkerer over time and I want stuff to just work because I just don't have time to deal with the bullshit. Like I used to root my phone. That used to be a you thing that a, I did on every phone. You were a maniac. I was a maniac. I, I root my phone. I would like install a different operating system on it weekly at for one for a, for a certain amount of time like i would i would find an operating system and i would install it and i would love it for like three days and then i would find a critical bug that i just couldn't get around and that would like break the experience for me and it's always a different one every single time and i would install it and it, like i would this would repeat for months and then i got my new phone uh which is an asus 5z and i haven't like i've never even thought about doing that again because i'm just done with it like I literally just use the apps that are on it. Like I'll install an app here and there, but like I've become less of a tinker. But 
when I have issues, I try to find solutions for those issues. And I, and I would get angry if I was like, if I reached to the point that Apple would give you is like, nope, you can't change this. Nope. You can't add this application. Nope. You can't do this. Like, nope, you can't sideload it, whatever. Like I would get angry at that. I think really quickly. So I was very much considering buying an iPhone as my next phone. But the more I think about it, the more I think I would just hate my, like hate, hate it like on a consistent basis. Um, as much as I like the hardware, like I love the way, like the processors, like I don't care about the screens or whatever, they're all the same, but, uh, the, the processors are really, really good, like miles ahead of Android. So, so as, as someone that's really into tech and wants to have the best specs that I can when I'm buying something, it's almost like I'm going against myself by having to buy Android at this point because Android is so far behind on the Silicon side. That it's not even like you can't compare them. Like it's there are two different levels of uh, computing power. But in terms of UX and UI, and in terms of like just regular phone speed, there's not much of a difference. It's gonna come into it's gonna come to light more on like longevity. So like five years down the line, I believe the newer iPhones will be able to handle more complex applications than the same Android devices. But other than that. It, it's not perceivable so much. Um, value. So it doesn't... It, it, they hold their value. Yeah. yeah. They hold their value much more. Like there's a lot of benefits to having an iPhone and stuff like that. And I, I have weighed them. So I, I'm still not... Uh, I'm still not sold. But I think I'm leaning more back towards Android. Because again, Matt, you mentioned the Project xCloud thing. It's a Microsoft game streaming service. Stadia. Google Stadia. It's a Google game streaming service. Hey guys, Future Matt here. So not to interrupt the episode, but having just started editing the show, I thought it was important to mention a few things. So the following conversation was very much an unexpected tangent, and we got some of the information wrong. Now we did correct slash fact check most of it later on in the episode, but I wanted to bring it up now before you listen to the conversation. So item one is that Apple's official statement on xCloud not being allowed in the App Store does not include anything regarding their 30% cut. Their statement is, quote, The App Store was created to be a safe and trusted place for customers to discover and download apps and a great business opportunity for all developers. Before they go on our store, all apps are reviewed against the same set of guidelines that are intended to protect customers and provide a fair and level playing field to developers. Our customers enjoy great apps and games from millions of developers, and gaming services can absolutely launch on the App Store as long as they follow the same set of guidelines applicable to all developers, including submitting games individually for review, and appearing in charts and search. In addition to the App Store, developers can choose to reach all iPhone and iPad users over the web through Safari and other browsers on the App Store. Now, that is from an article on The Verge, and I'm going to link that in our show notes so you can read that. The second item is that Netflix currently does not allow you to subscribe to their service inside of their iOS app. And this is according to an article on iPhoneFAQ.org, and I will be including a link to that article in the show notes as well. And item number three is that we mentioned that you weren't allowed to raise your rate of purchases in the app store to compensate for the 30% cut, something along those lines. Now, I couldn't find any articles on Apple not allowing apps to charge 
more for their purchases in iOS apps to compensate for the 30% cut. So again, I say I could not find any articles on Apple not allowing to charge more for their purchases in iOS apps to compensate for that 30% cut. But I did find an article from November 19th, 2019 from the mrphone.com that states that you might be paying more for YouTube premium slash YouTube music on iOS. Now, this article is covering the pricing in India. So this may vary depending on region. Again, I will put the link to this article in the show notes. I just wanted to make sure that you guys hear these fact-checked pieces of information before you listen to this unedited conversation that is about to play now. Those things, who knows when they're going to be on Apple? Because there's a complex thing where they have... uh, multiple games right on them and apple's demanding that they submit each game as a separate entity and they want to take another 30 percent cut on top of the subscription or they tell you like you can't sell their subscription on their service well, well we There's don't, so we don't know about the subscription like we know we know that they take a 30 percent piece but we don't know whether that's what they're we don't we do do we that is that is that is yeah that that's officially part of their statement like they against, want 30%. against something like xcloud yeah Absolutely. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought that yeah, was like they, people were speculating sort of like obviously Apple wants to make no, money. No, no. They they've they've come out and said it multiple times. Like there was a there, there were smaller developers that got hit by it, one of them being uh, Linus uh from uh Linus like what is this thing? Linus Tech Tips. Oh, Linus Media they, Group? Linus Media Group now. Yeah, that's right. And they have a Linus Tech Tips channel, but like he got hit with it when they were submitting a Floatplane, their Floatplane app, which is their like uh their take on Vessel, I don't know if everyone knows what Vessel is, but it's like a subscriber-only video service. So, like, you're allowed to – you can get people to subscribe to you by paying money and it's kind of like a donation and then you could get to access their content early or something. So, they've built their own system for that. When they submitted it on the Apple iStore, on the Apple Store, they weren't able to submit it until they removed every element of a subscription model from the iOS app. So, you can't even mention that you have a subscription you can't even mention anything uh, about a subscription model in the app. You can't have an FAQ being like, if you can't access this, it's because you're not subscribed. You cannot have that wording in your in your application because what they want is for you to go through their uh, payment API to take that 30% from you. The problem is, is that like I understand that in a lot of ways. Like if 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 the case is like a person is finding them on the app store going to the app and then subscribing through the app store and they're generating an income because of the fact that they found that and it, their API allowed them to do it easier, that's perfectly fine. And I understand why they're taking that big of a cut and all that because of the fact of the, the power of the app, the app store. But for services like this, like a float plane service, they are trying to do, they're trying to serve content, correct? So every subscription has to, has to actually has a monetary value to them because if someone subscribes they're going to be like watching content so that's going to take time and money from their servers and so they that means they they, they have to increase their costs by at least 30 percent yeah but that's to compensate that, for that. that is standard though like um for example like if you buy netflix on on an iphone netflix is more expensive but if you buy netflix on your computer you can't do that no no, no that's not that, that's not true uh that's literally against their tos you cannot increase costs of subscriptions on their device you i cannot. thought i thought for sure that that netflix was more money on on, on nope. an iphone nope 100 percent no can't do it you're not allowed to do that 
you're not allowed to do that. You have to keep the subscription model standard. So what you can do is you can increase th- by 30% across the board. But the problem is, is that you're now you're now you're increasing your cost by 30% or your your subscription model by 30%. So all your subscription modeling ha- are out the window. You're trying to get as much money as you can and you're giving it away to other people because like whatever model. So it's it becomes this complicated mess of trying to increase your costs, increase your price and try to limit that factor and it and something like a float plane or something like this application they're not reliant on people finding them in the app store like that's not part of their that's not part of their business like that, model. That, that's not their reach they're just offering it yes. because they want people on iphone to, be able to use it well okay well regardless of my comment i i, I don't yeah. i haven't fact checked my netflix mm-hmm. comment about their subscription i thought that's what it was but apparently mm-hmm. i'm not but regardless yeah. of whether that's true or not the the thing with vote plane though is like there are ways around the Apple Store guidelines like like in good faith like Apple is gonna work with Microsoft they are gonna work with Google if Google wants to but to get these games streaming services on there because obviously Apple wants people using the latest and greatest thing on the iPhone they haven't yet though but they haven't yet but like they are like committed to working with them like obviously they're gonna commit. that's what they've said but I I, I well, honestly they're, I don't they're, believe we, that maybe they'll never reach an impasse like maybe maybe they're mm-hmm. maybe, or maybe they will reach an impasse I should say but the thing is is like there is never Netflix on on whatever it's because like I don't I don't know where the heck I subscribed probably on my computer years and years and years ago but like there is a Netflix app on the App Store download that sign in and it's fine Global Playing Club can do the exact same thing yes so I don't know if Netflix allows you to subscribe from the App Store you used uh, to be able to as far yeah, as I know for sure I don't know you about used to now be able to. I don't know about it. now yeah that's the thing like so I don't know if they allow them to do that like maybe they just take that thirty percent cut you know what I mean like they just eat it. Because Netflix is a massive service, but when you're a small service, that's a serious cut of your subscribing, right? Of your subscriber pool, right? Like you're, it's not easier. It's not easier to do that. Um, or like again, the the way they got around it, Floatplane was literally to remove anything about their subscription model from their app. So all the app is is allows people to view the content that they've already subscribed to previously. Right. Okay. Well, Fair well, well here, here, here's one. Sorry, just to fact check us here. Mm-hmm. I'm on iPhoneFAQ.org and I'm just reading a very brief section of this article. It just says, how can I sign up for Netflix on iPhones? So it's sort of like a guide. And it says, Netflix removed in-app purchases from its iOS app. Without an iTunes subscription, how can I start a Netflix account? And how can I restart my Netflix account on iPhone or iPad? The Netflix app on iPhone, iPad, and iPod Touch does not offer a way to subscribe. While yep. those with an existing Netflix account can sign in to watch Starting a subscription cannot be done. Uh, so it's on just the app. it's just making the UX terrible. Like it's just making it worse for everyone because they want more money. That's it. Like that's that. I don't care what they say about security goals or whatever. That is their only one hundred percent goal. Of this they want that thirty. I will say cut. that their restrictions, Apple's restrictions, are going to in general. With the thirty percent or otherwise, because another thing that stopped them from doing the X Cloud thing, I wasn't aware of this whole monetization thing. But like, I know that one of the things is, is that they require to like review all of the apps that go on the App Store, and obviously by you putting a game streaming service, you are streaming different apps and or games in this case to your iPhone, and therefore they they those apps cannot be reviewed. Although it does work. Apparently on the browser, if you go to Safari and go to xCloud, whatever it's going to be, the xCloud website, you can you can still stream the game from the browser. So that still works because they don't care because the browser is just the browser, obviously. But the 
the restrictions, like if we if we forget about the monetization, the restrictions, the restrictions in terms of the them having to review everything, among other guideline restrictions that they have, is starting to hold them back from getting the latest tech. Like the HomePod would be much more useful if Apple would give Siri more features, but their own internal restrictions paranoia and worry about security whether it's paranoia or actual concern is holding siri back which holds the home pod back and yes you could argue the home pod is for music and that's what it's meant for and like app you know, whatever that's fine but it would still you can, like i i don't think i don't think it could be argued that it would be more useful to have more voice commands on siri like that is a fact more voice commands that work well would be great on siri but Siri doesn't get get updated or advanced as quickly as Google Assistant because because of Apple's own internal issues. So I don't know what to say. Yeah. Could this be the beginning of Apple's problems? Like are they going to have to open up like Android like is this you know how every titan in a space falls? Is this the beginning of their they're gonna have to change or fall? Like, is this is this a thing? Like, you know, game streaming. Not everyone game streams, right? But are are these UX experiences going to stack up? I mean, time will tell. I don't know the answer to that. Um, obviously, the iPhone is still very powerful, has tons of apps, so clearly their restrictions aren't that restrictive. But they're like we're starting to see new innovations and we're starting to see those new innovations not reach the iPhone in the way that they're fully supposed to Netflix subscription. You got to buy on the computer or buy on the browser, whatever, but, but to, to me, that's not whatever. Like it, I don't want to be going this point, but like a person that just bought an iPad for their family and doesn't have a computer cannot subscribe to Netflix or they can through the browser, I guess they can right? through the browser. They just go to Safari. Okay. But- yeah, I guess that's not that that's not that terrible. But again, like you have to go through and f- figure that out. Like, yeah, you download the app and you're like, okay, I can't subscribe. So it's it's weird. It's weird because like for us, it's not a big deal at all. Like, who cares? Like, I can subscribe on my phone. I can subscribe on the, the browser. But for a regular person whose Apple is designed for, you're hindering them in, in UX. I think it it will lead to change. And they'll adapt slightly. Like, I don't think they're going to adapt fully, but I think they're gonna they're gonna open up. They're going to do something with this whole streaming thing that's called game streaming that's going to allow them to bring them on the store in a secure and reg- in a reliable manner. And they're they're going to do something about the subscription models because they're just getting a lot of bad press on it. And the more bad press they get on it, the the more they'll be want- willing to change. They've, they've been willing to change a lot more often nowadays than they were in the previous like five or ten years. So I think that that those showing like showing them going back to the magic keyboard, showing them you know listening to people about potentially bringing touch to the Mac OS infrastructure, stuff like that, I think is a sign of them adapting. Right. So I think they will adapt their store model to it. Uh, it's only a matter of time, but I don't know when that is. And right now, if I was buying a phone like today, I think that that would. Like that would probably affect my purchasing decision. Not that it would affect a regular consumer, but for me, it does. It definitely hurt. Like, I mean, I, we, we are going to, we're going to, we're looking at getting work phones and 
I mean, I, I already have Android devices, so like we're thinking, you know, for testing purposes that, that I would go for an iPhone, which probably isn't going to change. But I was thinking myself when I said that, I was like, maybe I'll like an iPhone better. Like, you know, that was on the table. But like, I think now, especially with the Microsoft partnership with just straight up Windows, but not only this, it's like, I'm already an Xbox Game Pass Ultimate subscriber, for example. And, and like, I would effectively be missing out on a part of my subscription, whether I use it or not. I just hate having like sort of a dead feature you know, needlessly dead featured, like, on my, on my, like, subscription, you know what I mean? Like, I, it, it'd be like buying SMS for my phone plan and then just not using SMS, for example. Yep. Yeah, be I'm trying to find know. out, yeah. like, I think, oh, I, I, think I see gotta, here. So, like, hmm. I'm, I was trying to, I was looking up here just to sort of, like, fact check and stuff. So, like, hmm. the 30% thing, the 30% thing is, is real. Like, I'm not saying that's not real. Apple getting thirty percent cut of like things bought on the App Store, but like so is Android though. Just just to equate it. Okay, yeah, like yeah, like Google yeah. takes whatever yeah. cut, but um, there is like I I think it's still like I've only looked up a couple articles here. I think it's still speculation, technically, that that's why Apple doesn't like these game games on there because they haven't come like Apple didn't come out and like I think. Like, Apple didn't come out and say, we don't want this because we don't want 30%. I think they're... Right? Okay, fair fair enough. Like, if, if there's no other actual statements, I just I, don't... Not, not that I see. Like, I've only looked up yeah. for a couple of... Okay. I, I just think, like, there's multiple reasons. I think one of the big ones is the fact that they can't... They want that 30% cut. Um, but I think the other reason, the most... Probably the more important one is the one that you're saying is the multiple apps inside of one app. They don't like that. They've said that multiple times. They have blocked so many apps that have tried to do that. So that's going to be a big one to hurdle, but they're going to have to adapt in some way, shape, or form. Whether that be changing their code uh, language, like not language, but having having a way for, for people to submit more like sandboxed applications that do have this feature so that they're not able to access some information. And then they're allowed to have this feature and stuff like that. Like they could, they could give you more more requirements into what you can and can't access on the phone if you're going to bring on other apps. So, for instance, if like they have an app, if someone were to exploit it, for instance, and bring on a bunch of apps in one app, they wouldn't be able to do like a bunch like their own mail client, their own whatever, like their own notes app because it's not going to be able to access like the storage. It's not going to be able to sync to anything. Like stuff like that. Like I think that they're going to bring on limitations like that to counteract any negatives that could happen or lessen the effect, the security problems that could happen with some with like a regulation. Because if they allow it to happen to xCloud and Stadia, obviously other people are going to try to take advantage of it. And that's that's what they have to go through on their end to figure out. And that's I mean, that's probably what they're doing. But who knows when that's going to actually happen? That's my that's my concern is I don't know. They don't they're not very. um it's not like they've come out and said that they're they're working on this. They've just kind of denied it, and that's it. So it's it's all up in the air. This is a mess. Like this this yeah. this app this app store thing. I mean, I'm one I'm one for like respecting somebody for sticking with their sticking to their guns to to an extent. And like I mean, Apple does do that, so I respect them in that regard. Like, um, like I'm reading here. Like this is on Phone Arena. Like phonearena.com. Uh, like it literally says in a statement for Business Insider, Apple said that Project X Cloud, NVIDIA GeForce Now and Google Stadia will never be officially accessible via an iOS device because Apple won't allow it. The, may, uh, the reason is that Apple can't individually review 
every app that these services are offer access to and then there's a quote here the app store was created to be a safe and trusted place for consumers or for customers to discover and download apps and a great business opportunity for all developers before they go on our store all apps are reviewed against the same set of guidelines that are intended to protect customers and provide a fair and level playing field to developers yeah (sighs) i get it I get it, but they're going to have to do something about that because the, these apps are becoming more and more popular. And if the choice starts becoming like, oh, I can't game stream. But the thing uh, is, is how many, people are, how many people are going to like, I know a bunch of people that play games. I know a bunch of people that play games a lot. I know a bunch of people that play games that are not going to be streaming so, it to their phone. So I'll give you an example. Uh, emerging markets. Apple is really deep into emerging markets now with the, with the iPhone SE, like India, uh, Africa, all that. Um, they're going to be a big, a big, uh, a big user of the game streaming services. Right. So that's going to be their deciding Although, factor. Will they? What, because don't they have slow internet? No, they have really good internet. They have much better internet than we do. Oh, interesting. Okay. And much cheaper. Yeah, like I'm just guessing. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like they have they have inf- internet infrastructure that's pretty damn good and really cheap. So it's it, internet is not their main problem. This is a mess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the I thing know, is, I, I think, the thing is, yeah. is like Apple is technically preventing a scammy app store from opening up an app and uh, from from submitting and getting approved another app store that is like a collection of apps that are just streamed to your phone. Yes, absolutely. And like that, like their policies some, do exist to yeah. that degree. And the yeah. fact that apps, specifically in this case, games are added to xCloud remotely. Like it's not like they go to Apple and be like, hey, we have another game. They're added, they're added and removed and rotated remotely and updated, by the way, updated so, remotely. I just think that they're going to have to have a sandboxed mode. So that this is allowed for gaming, because if you're allowing people to do it on the web, then that means that there are security protocols that are able to handle this. So you're able to just convert those security protocols to the iOS app store and then just that's it. I don't think it's a technical challenge, to be no, honest. No, I, I don't think I, I don't think, think it's, it's a technical internal. challenge. I think it if I mean, if if money isn't isn't their goal here, then more because because think about this, right? I don't know whether money would be their goal because they don't charge per movie on Netflix. They also don't review every movie on Netflix. But Apple also doesn't review audio and and video things. Like they don't review movies. They don't review podcasts. Well, they like they review the podcast like once, but then like, you know, we are on Apple Podcasts. But yet like we yeah. don't You know what I'm trying to say? Like we we remotely yeah, update content the the content is is but but the content has to be the content so the content doesn't access the device that's the difference like you can't have a malicious podcast you can have a podcast that says a bunch of stupid shit but you can't have a podcast that'll take over and steal a person's information you can't have a netflix show that'll steal a person's information that's what they're concerned with with these that's why i'm saying that they have to create the sandbox mode that allows developers to use it so that they're not able to access any external information other than what they have in their app. So they're not able so that developers aren't able to build malicious stores. And then they'll allow these these things on. Like I think that's the technical challenge that they have to like do for them to allow all the other stores on and I think that's probably something they're working on currently. Um it's just they should be doing it faster in my opinion, but 
Apple moves slowly, which is, I mean, it's their MO. I don't know. There's not much. See, the thing like, is, there's is, not much we can really say. Like, like a- Apple is a titan, and so Apple could yes. be an influencer, and Apple could also be the person that kills mobile game streaming. I like, don't think they they're would, big enough. I don't think they would. They would be there big enough to kill it. But the thing is, we're talking about Apple has a huge footprint in the mobile space. There's only so many people that have mo- in, have Android devices in North America. Just to clarify, Apple has a huge footprint in North America, like over fifty percent. Right. But over over the other the rest of the world, they don't, and that's that's where they're more concerned with at this very moment. They don't care about North America because they've won here. Like they'll still be pumping like time and effort into it, but they're pumping way more. Just like every other system, just like Samsung, just like everyone else, is trying to compete in that developing market because that's the only growth. No one cares about a company that performs well and doesn't grow. Like that's literally the worst thing a company can have is like stop growth. So all Apple cares about is how are they going to go? And that's their user base. The people that they don't have is the only thing they care about. They don't not give a crap about like Jimmy down the street right now because they know that James and all the other people around him are using iPhones. They get, they care about, you know, all the people in developing countries. Like realistically, that's their that's their decision making right now. For some reason, I feel as though, even though this feels like it's a big change, I feel as though nothing's going to change. And I feel no, as see. though, yeah, I, don't I feel know. as you know what I'm you know what I'm trying to say though. Like yeah, I feel I like I feel like, like it's it, just yeah. going to be like Apple's like we don't have game streaming apps. What are you going to do? Buy another phone? And then most people are probably going to be like, well, no, because I use it for the camera, the messaging, all mm-hmm. this other stuff that I can already do. Like, yeah. I can see Apple just being like, no, like, I'm not going to change. Like, I I think we see that with Siri, where Siri, like, could do more, but doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I Like, there's well, only time will it's tell. Because I think that's they're my big. capstone. It's because yeah. they're big that they're able to only, do that, I'd say. Only time will tell. Hopefully they go the right route. Should almost oh, I almost want to take bets, but I'm going to say they don't care about this. I'm going to say this is a this is a. I think they will allow them on. Let's see. Let's see how long. I I think they'll allow them on in. I, I, a I year. would say this. I would say this. X Cloud might not. might be able to let them on. Why? Because some of these games are made by Xbox Game Studios. I wouldn't be surprised if X Cloud appears on my on on. Uh, Apple devices as an app that you solely sign into and for and you can't access the full library you can only access the Microsoft specific software and they would review the Xbox Game Studio games and that's what going to do that. What? I don't think that 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 100% that's not going to happen. But Microsoft wants I'm their foot in the door. I think I think I in terms of like their I don't think that Apple's going to change their gu- app store guidelines because that's going to open the door to all these other people that want to have scammy apps potentially. I think they will. I think they will but they'll change them in a way that'll be more sustainable. Like they're not going to just open the door, but they're going to open the door with like a creep. Like, are they going to have to make a specific partnership with Microsoft and make a specific exception? But then, no. But then there that's... won't be a specific exception. There won't that that won't happen. It will be a general guideline, and the guideline will be restrictive in a way that the app, if you if you're streaming other apps or other content that can access the phone, they cannot access data on the phone. So you won't be able to sign in with your like your credentials, your 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 Apple tied credentials. You won't be able to uh, use any of the Apple 
stuff like the Apple data that's on your phone, any of your user data that's on your phone to interact with the application and vice versa. That's what they're going to have to do. Like I said, a sandbox for these apps. It's like they, they don't even detect that they're running on an Apple phone, essentially. So they can't they can't do anything. I don't think malicious. that's the problem. I think it's the app store itself. I don't think that's I don't think they care about that what you're saying. I but think it, I think it's I think the, the, the hurdle is getting onto the app store itself. I get but the, if if they don't they don't want apps. crap on the app store. They got rid of all the flashlight apps. Oh, yeah, that's true. They got rid of yeah, all I the flashlight know. apps. Like, cause they were just like, oh, we now have flashlight. We have now have a flashlight. Long, long, long time ago, they said, oh, we now have a flashlight button on in the system. We don't need your app. And they got rid of them all. Yeah, it's true. I, I, I still think they're going to do it. Game streaming is a different, is a different beast. Like it's, it's, it's coming and it's going to come hard. And I think within a year, they'll allow these apps on the store. I think they're just taking their time. We'll see. I'm I'm calling it this year, this time next year, or September next year. I I would say, uh, by September next year. I don't think it's a big enough hole in their pocket. I don't think they care. We'll see. Only time will tell. Yeah. All right. I gotta I gotta take off though. Yeah, it's pretty late here. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm gonna run the old conclusion then. Uh, Runner up. So uh, after that massive tangent, uh, remember on Patreon, uh, Patreon.com/slash/html the things. Uh, and many thanks to our three dollar tier patrons: Sean from RabbitWorks JavaScript. Find him at YouTube.com/slash/RabbitWorksJavaScript. Garrick from Local Path Computing and Web Design. Find him at LocalPathComputing.com. Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital. Find him at BlueBlackDigital.com. Tim from the Web Hacker. Find him at TheWebHacker.com. DL Ford from DLFord.io and Bib Hashdash from Twitter via at Bib Hashdash. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform you're listening to this on, and we. Whoa, almost did the, the old intro, and we're going to let this intro sign us off. Outro, sign us off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media. On Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things. Signing off.